The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1967, Part 3, the release of the LP, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Side A. Can you, without giving away any trade secrets, tell us anything about the numbers that you're engaged on at the moment for this this uh, new album that you're working on? Oh, we've done about nine or ten, mm-hmm. and um, I think we've done about nine or ten. And there's a couple of strange ones, a couple of happy-go-lucky northern songs, mm-hmm. and uh, a couple of a couple of whimsical, you know, folk medieval guitar. folk rock. Mm-hmm. Have you the, have you this time um, augmented again? Used used. Any yeah. strange lineups at all? Yeah, we've well, we've used sort of things that uh, aren't us, you know, mm-hmm. quite a bit. Cause, we used uh, the monkeys on a few of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, but they wouldn't go along with the TV series uh, that we had planned for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a wonderful lady, and she's mine, all mine. And there doesn't seem a way that she won't come and lose my mind It's too easy humming songs to a girl in yellow dress It's been a long time since the party and the room is in a mess The four kings of EMI are sitting stately on the floor There are birds out on the sidewalk and a ballet at the door 
Yes, so there's a few things going on. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for giving us the facts. Well, by George in the studio, we have old Ringo Starr of the Beatles fame. Ringo, what have you been doing since I last saw you in America a year ago? Um, very much. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I went on holiday, we made an LP, we've made a few more tracks, we've sort of been busy. What do you think of this new LP? It's a, it, it's a bit strange compared to the others. Would you term it psychedelic? Only if you want to think of it as psychedelic. I think they're going to call it Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. That was just the kind of thing that Pepper did to me rather than I did to Pepper. It was a good piece of work between Paul and I to find the product, you know. It's like Mona Lisa, his day. It wouldn't matter to me if it was 20 years ago or 20 years in the future. The plastic has it. Finally, in June, the first Beatles Spectacular was released, setting the 60s up with a whole new concept of recorded sound. On June 1st, 1967, the LP that took 700 hours to record is released on the Parlophone label. Their eighth album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And along with it comes a new era. Where Revolver left off, Sgt. Pepper begins. Tomorrow Never Knows, Eleanor Rigby, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever were the forerunners of the complete change. Its concept expanded and inspired everyone in music and has been described as the most influential album in pop history. Roger McGuinn of The Birds. I loved Sgt. Pepper. I thought it was really amazing. Graham Nash of the Hollies. It was the greatest record that I've heard, and to this day, still one of my favorite records. I remember uh, we were recording at the time they were doing all those sessions, and I was talking with George Martin one day on the steps of here, and I said, so are the lads finished? He said, uh, no, they're not quite finished yet. I said, oh, yeah? He said, what are they going to call this album? He said, I think they're going to call it Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Stop, stop, stop all the dancing, give me time to John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. I remember the first time I heard a dub of it, you know, a, a rough cut recording. It just partially mixed. Uh, John Lennon sent it over to us. And uh, we played it in the offices at Monterey Pop before the festival. Uh, I think it's about a month before. We were knocked out. We thought it was great. And Gene Cornish of the Young Rascals, who, by the way, had the number one song in Billboard with Groovin' the week that Sgt. Pepper came out. I still think the same thing. You know, it's, a, it's like Mona Lisa. It was a day. Let's face it. I don't know if they did it on four track. I really don't know. They, you know supposedly they did it on th three or four track. But if they did, then, it, then to me it's Phil Spector and George Martin forever. Paul McCartney. Remember the weekend it was um, released getting like a telegram off people like sort of James Fox, long live Sergeant Pepper. And you know, people had come round and said, oh, great album, man. So it got very noticed as sort of, it was like you were making it for us, our crowd. I think it did represent what the young people were on about. And it seemed to coincide with a, a revolution in, in young people's thinking. And uh, it was the kind of, I suppose, the epitome of the swinging 60s. It sort of linked up with Mary Quant and miniskirts and all that kind of thing. And dope to a certain extent. You know, the, the freedom of sex, the freedom of, of um, soft drugs like marijuana and so on. Um, I suppose that was all a bit exciting. And it, I think it did reflect its time. George Harrison. I think that, that period felt special because there was a great upsurge of energy and consciousness and uh, because there was so much attention given to not just the Beatles but to everything that was taking place all the changes that were happening with fashion and and with filmmakers and um, poets and painters and the whole thing it was like um, a sort of mini renaissance and so there was a lot of excitement on the street there was a lot of people who were all trying to go on the same trip together. I thought it was great. Um, I thought it was a huge advance 
I, I was very pleased because the newspapers, the musical papers, had been saying recently, a month or two before, what are the Beatles up to? Drying up, I suppose. And so it was nice making an album like Pepper, thinking, mm -hmm, yeah, drying up, that's, that, I suppose that's right, yeah. So it was lovely to have that on them, you know. When it came out, I was... Um, Loved it. Uh, I kind of had a party, you know, sort of celebrate. That weekend was a bit of a party, as I recall. And, you know, I remember getting lots of telegrams, as I say, from people. It was obvious people knew it. And the biggest single sort of tribute for me was that uh, it was released on the Friday. And on the Sunday, we went to the Savile Theatre, which uh, Brian Epstein uh, rented on Savile and ran some rock shows, because nothing ever happened on the Sunday. And Jimi Hendrix opened with Sgt. Pepper, and he'd only had since the Friday to, to learn it. It was a turning point. It cost a reputed 40,000 pounds to make, a far cry from the EMI budget restrictions of the first albums. The title track appears in two forms on the album. Paul has said that he was just thinking of nice words like Sergeant Pepper and Lonely Hearts Club, and they came together for no particular reason. Sergeant Pepper, the opening track of the album, starts off with applause or rather atmosphere noise from a recording I made up in Cambridge with Beyond the Fringe crowd, Dudley Moore and company. Our commentator, John Lennon. We're sitting in the hush semicircular theatre and waiting for the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band to come on, and here they come now, playing the first number. Right, let's go. Since Ringo didn't write, his songs were created for him. A little help from friends Lennon and McCartney. One afternoon in March, Paul and John got together in Paul's workroom in his house on Cavendish Avenue near the Abbey Road Studios. They called Ringo to say they'd finished the song for him to sing on the new album. But they hadn't. And since Ringo was prepared to come, they quickly wrote a piece and recorded it that night. Story about that song. The original line was, um, what would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you, would you throw... Uh, would you stand up and throw tomatoes at me or would you throw tomatoes at me? And I, I would not sing that line, tomatoes at me, because uh, I hated the line anyway. And in those days, they used to throw all sorts of stuff at us on stage. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want this to become a habit either. And I, I just hated the line, so I refused to sing that line, tomatoes. So they changed it, um, would you stand up and walk out on me? Besides changing that line, it took a lot of coaxing from Paul to get me to sing that last note. I just felt it was very high. I always worry about the vocals, you know, and I'm insecure when I do the vocals. 
And so he would, you know, get me up and uh, we finally got the, the, uh, that last note. The Billy Shears mentioned came about because Paul wanted a word to rhyme with years. star on a track from the new Beatles album, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It's a classic Ringo song, isn't it? It's, uh, it's an open kind of a song that is forever Ringo. He had just that beautiful uh, open voice that could be Ringo talking to his friends. I mean, that was really, there was always John, Paul, George and Ringo, wasn't it? The special appeal of the Beatles was that all of those four people had their own corner of it and that the one that they all liked Whatever else may be going on in the world, the three who weren't Ringo would be Ringo's friends. So that if they sang at him, he would sing back cheerfully, knowing that he was um, in favor kind of a thing. When he sings, um, would you walk out on me? Of course they wouldn't walk out on him. How would you feel if I sang out at you? Wouldn't matter if you sang out at you, Ringo. <laughs> you know, anything you do is all right about. Well, the next is like a statement of imagination. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds as being an element of importance. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was uh, Julian, you know, John's John son. He goes to a sort of kindergarten. And came home from school with a painting of a little girl in a black sky with stars all around her. My son came home with a drawing and said, showed me this strange-looking woman flying around. I showed up at John's house and he said to me, look at this great drawing Julian's just done. And he showed me, I remember it very well. It was a kid's drawing, and kids always have people floating around like Chagall does in all these things. They're always just floating. I think it's just something to do with the kids. Don't realize people have to be put on the ground. I've, I've seen the painting that this little kid does. I don't know if you've got kids, you know, but they just slap paint everywhere and say it's a painting. And of course, we put them in frames and put them on the wall. And, uh, <laughs> and it was just this crazy little kid's painting. And what is that? I said, what is it? He said, it's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And I thought, that's beautiful. I immediately wrote a song about it. John was inspired and thought of a song as an Alice in Wonderland idea. 
Surrealism had a great effect on me because then I realized that my imagery in my mind wasn't insanity. Psychedelic vision is reality to me. His imagery again invokes the surreal pictures of Salvador Dali and the word formations of Dylan Thomas. The song had gone out, the whole album had been published, and somebody noticed that the, the letters spelt out LSD. And I had no idea about it. Beatle critics went crazy. The inference to LSD in the title was another sad interpretation by the pop public who were constantly trying to see beyond the joyful scenarios set up by John. And of course, after that, I was checking all the songs to see what the, the letters spelled out. Yeah. They didn't spell out anything, none of the others. And uh, it wasn't about that at all, you know. One day, months ago, Julian, son of Lennon, came home from school with a painting he'd just drawn. A picture of a lady bursting with colours. John Lennon said, What's that you got there, Junior? To which Junior replied, It's Lucy in the sky with diamonds, Daddy. Shut up. But that simple tale just didn't ring true for the fans who remain convinced that John's inspiration was acid. Now we'd like to play you one. That's a sad little song. Where's it gone? Oh, this is it, yeah. Picture yourself on an old-fashioned elephant. Lucy in the sky for everyone. Now. Tangerine trees and marmalade skies Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly A girl with kaleidoscope So uh, I'm sure Julian wasn't thinking of LSD. 
The next song uh, says that this is making everything get better. Jimmy Nickel was the drummer who filled in for Ringo when he had tonsillitis during their tour of Holland and Australia. The Beatles would always ask Jimmy if he was holding up all right, and he would always reply with, it's getting better, it's getting better. I remember when I was writing a song off Sergeant Pepper called Getting Better All the Time. I'd be sitting at the piano and go, getting better all the time. And John would go, it couldn't get much worse. And that's, that's a big collaboration, you know, just to sling in that line out of nowhere. Derek Taylor explains. John was sitting there saying, can't get much worse. So that would be John's contribution to the song, and it was a beautiful counterpoint. Poor singing, getting better all the time, can't get much worse. And then back to, it's getting better all the time, so they come out on a note of optimism. So that was clear collaboration. One day, Paul was out walking his sheepdog, Martha. It was a beautiful spring day, and Paul said to Martha, it's getting better, Martha, it's getting better. John added the part about being cruel to his woman because in his earlier days, he was. It's getting better all the time I used to get mad at my school Teachers that taught me weren't cool That one sung by Paul McCartney, superb. And for all those of haters of uh, special effects, that's a completely dry run for you. Not on that one. The next song is he's uh, uh, dealing with his mind itself and fixing a hole. Fixing a hole, written by Paul, has a lot to do with his feelings towards Beatle fans. One evening I entertained Jesus. It was very nice, actually. He showed up at my house in London. I was living on my own in, as a bachelor in London. And he showed up at the gate, and I was very amenable to people. I was just living on my own. I was, what the hell, you haven't got a family you're going to disturb. You're not bothering me. So I used to kind of generally spend a lot of time talking to these people. So, so this guy turned up, and I said, hi, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus Christ. I said, you better come in then. <laughs> so he came in. I said, look, I've got a session. We were recording Fixing a Hole for the Sergeant Pepper. And I said, well, you, you better come to the session. I said, but keep quiet, won't you? I said, just sit in the corner, don't bother any, you'll be all right. You're telling Jesus this. So I had to tell all the guys, I said, it's, it's Jesus, fellas, you know, I said, don't mind if he sits in on the session, do you? I said, no, no problem. 
I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wandering where it My mind from wandering where it will go. And it really doesn't matter if I'm wrong and right, where I belong and right, where I belong. See the people standing there who disagree and never win. Wonder why they don't get in my door. next track, She's Leaving Home, is a beautifully crafted song written by Paul. Paul McCartney. There was an article in a, a paper, a national paper here called the Daily Mirror, and there was just a story, you know, the kind of story that's in every other week about a girl. She was the daughter of some sort of rich family, you know, and uh, the whole thing was, you know, early this morning, so-and-so left home. The parents said, oh, we gave her everything. They gave her everything she could want. I can't understand why she left home. She had everything here. And yet she did, you know, she left home. And the father was really going to put in a court injunction and get the police on it. So anyway, we were just trying to, you know, laugh at that a bit, show her and tell Daphne. Beatles press agent Derek Taylor. It's a very sensitive look at what was always the case uh, with generations, not just 60s, uh, of people who wanted to cut out of domestic life and whom, in a way, married or went off with the wrong people just to get away from parents. The arrangement of John and Paul singing alternate lines gives the piece its strength. The line about meeting a man from the motor trade was an in-joke, referring to their friend Terry Doran, who used to be a car salesman. The man in the motor trade, uh, yeah. in this line, in uh, She's Leaving Home, yeah. which people say that's supposed to be an abortionist, supposedly. Meeting a man from the motor trade, it depends what's in your mind, you know. And no matter how much you say that it isn't an abortionist, if somebody believes it is, then that's up to them, you know, they'll go on believing it. The strings were arranged by Mike Leander because George Martin wasn't available to put down on paper the harmonies that were in the impatient head of Paul McCartney. It was the only time that anyone else had arranged a Beatles song other than George Martin. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins Silently closing her bedroom door Leaving the note that she hoped would say more She goes downstairs to the kitchen 
gin clutching a handkerchief Quietly turning the back door key Stepping outside she is free She We gave her most of our lives Is leaving Sacrificed most of our lives oh. We gave her everything money could buy She's into a dressing gown Picks up the letter that's lying there Standing alone at the top of the stairs She breaks down and cries to her husband Daddy, our baby's gone Why would she treat us so thoughtlessly? How could she do this to me? She We never thought of ourselves Never a thought for ourselves We struggle hard all our lives to get cheesy Far away Waiting to keep the appointment she made Meeting a man from the motor trade She What did we do that was wrong? Lovely. Beautiful. Fantastic. Gets me right here. Well, no, perhaps a bit higher. Just here. Fantastic. <gasps> John Lennon, Paul McCartney. I think that Paul composed that one all by himself. It sounds like one of his, doesn't it? Very peaceful. Anyway, that's called She's Leaving Home. The next is a kind of uh, magic show or acrobatic show. And being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, more drug paranoia dropped on the Henry the Horse reference, though John admits he lifted the entire song from a Victorian circus poster that John had bought in a store near his home in Weybridge. Advertising the 1843 Circus Royale. I remember we walked into an antique shop in Sevenoaks in Kent, and we were looking at what they had there, and John pulled out this thing that he found, which was said the benefit of Mr. Kite, and it was virtually all the lyrics to that song. When I saw it, it was hanging up in the hall of his house in, in Surrey. And it had everything that the song has on it. It had the Henderson Twins and Pablo Fanke's Fair, and all those words were written on the poster. And he thought, it obviously inspired him to write a song about a, a fairground or a circus. That's how you do it. You know, you, you get ideas, you hear people say stuff, or you hear a phrase that sounds good and you write it down and remember it. He says that it was a straight lift. Quote, I had all the words staring me in the face. I just took all the lines and joined them together word for word. I'm not proud of it. I was just going through the motions because we needed a new song for Sergeant Pepper. So I wrote that as a pure poetic job, you know, to write a song. I was sitting there and I, wanted, I had to write because it was time to write, you know. And I had to write it quick because otherwise I wouldn't have been on the album. <laughs> if the words came easily for the song, the music and production didn't. 
John told George Martin that he wanted the music to swirl up and around to give it a circus atmosphere. To get this calliope and hurdy-gurdy sound, George tried all sorts of ways. I had to create a sound for Mr. Kite that evoked a carnival circus atmosphere. And when we were talking about it, he said he wanted to be able to smell the sawdust in the arena when he listened to the music. So it was my job to interpret that and try and give him a, a sound that would sound like a, a fairground. And I said, what you need, John, is a calliope, a kind of steam organ sound. So we constructed a backing with the Beatles themselves using uh, organs, a Hammond organ and a Wurlitz organ, and Mal Evans, dear Mal, who was their roadie, playing bass harmonica to give a kind of stomping sound to it. And when it came to the swirly bits of Harry the Horse, I said to John, the best thing is to have a kind of swirly noise on the organ. Well, the swirly noise that I wanted, I couldn't do it fast enough to get the real smooth effect. So I said, John, look, what we'll have to do is play the tape half speed, and you'll have to play your tune half speed, an octave lower, and I'll do my swirly bits as fast as I can, an octave down, and it should come out right. So that's what we did, and that's what you hear today. Now, later on, that wasn't really quite enough, so I wanted to have the real sound of steam organs. So I got a collection of records of, of steam organ sounds, and, of course, inevitably, they were all playing recognisable tunes, mostly marches, like Scotland the Brave and things like that. So I said, well, that won't do. We can't have other tunes in the middle of this. So I asked the engineer, Jeff Emmerich, to put them onto tape, and then, having got them onto tape, I said, we'll cut them up into one-foot lengths, just under a second each. I said, now fling the whole lot up in the air and then stick it back together again. Because once we'd stuck them and then rejoined them, hoping that they would all make up some weird different tune, but because it came back identical, which was, you know, a million to one chance of doing that. Well, that, does, that sounds too much like the original. Turn it round back to front. So we made up a tape where the sounds were complete garbage, really. I mean, it was just random sounds. But undeniably, the sound was still that of a steam organ. I had visions of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, who had a, a little pipey organ in their hut. John thought slightly differently. He thought of Magic Roundabout. But it was a tooty kind of sound that we were able to create. And I said, well, what we'll do is we'll lay that whole new tape in, in the background of our recording. And that gave you that kind of feeling that you were in a fairground. That was the way it was done. Engineer Jeff Emmerich. I always remember that overdub because I think George was pumping away at that harmonium and plus Paul was doing keyboards and all the percussion parts were all done on the same track and it all had to be done live. And I think I spent about six hours doing that and eventually George just collapsed on the floor. That was exhausting, sheer exhaustion.
into six when Mr. K performs his tricks without a sound. And Mr. H will demonstrate ten somersets he'll undertake on solid ground. Bing bing, some days in preparation, a splendid time is guaranteed for all. And tonight, Mr. Kite is topping the bill. How many takes do you, did you usually do on this album before you got the perfect take? We did quite a few on each one, but uh, it's just because it's changed, you know, like in the, in the old days uh, of like, the LP Please Please Me, we went in and did it in a day because we knew all the numbers and, uh, you know, they'd been, uh, we'd rehearsed them and done them and been playing them for about a year. But nowadays we just take a song in and all we've got, you know, is the chords on a guitar and the words and the tune. So we've got to work out how to arrange it and that. So we do a lot of takes on each one, you know. We were really spending a long time in the studio. And we were still doing the basic tracks like we always did. And it took longer for me because I would do the basic track. We would do the basic backing track, which would do the, uh, the drums. And then it would be days or weeks and even months uh, sometimes to come back to the track and put on, you know, overdub like the Hyatt or, it was, uh, you know, listening again, there's lots of um, conga drums. You know, I'm not a percussionist, you know, that's another field of drums, but I'm on playing the congas and there's lots of maracas and all that stuff sort of came on at the end. So there was a lot of huge gaps. I, you know, the biggest memory I have of Sergeant Pepper is I learned to play chess on it. <laughs> don't think that. <clears throat> I think it'll probably be another day singing it. Yeah, I just I heard it then. That was nice. Yeah. And what you could do with the bits where you can't get it because <clears throat> you haven't got enough <throat> breath. It wasn't recorded like a band, you know, where you learn the songs. It was starting to become bitty. We were, we were changing our method of working at that time. And instead of now looking for catchy singles, catchy singles, catchy singles, it was now to, to do more, it was more like writing your novel. Producer George Martin gives us his feelings about the length of time it took to record Sgt. Pepper. Well, uh, there were times when I wondered whether we were being too self-indulgent and being, if you like, pretentious. Um, but when I started putting it all together, I thought, no, this really is good and I'm quite sure we've done the right thing. And um, when it came up, uh, the very first time anybody heard anything, they were knocked out by it, and that encouraged me enormously. I thought, well, it's been good to have done this, you know. How long did you take over technical details like phasing? Phasing is great. Double flanging, yeah. we call it. Now, there yeah. you go, right, we're on the same thing. Flanging is great, right. Yeah, you used to do all Lucy in the it. Sky. You name the one that isn't on, you know, you name it. You spot it, you get a prize, and you get a Sergeant Pepper badge. information or to contact the show visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com also visit at yesterdaypod on twitter and search yesterday and today podcast on facebook see you next time
I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. <laughs> hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally we'll do an all-star podcast. We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once, that is true. <laughs> we are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird, see? We weren't even lying. 